Hello and welcome to this International Week special edition of ACSports.com's Your Sports Memo Podcast. My name is Calvin Emeka and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this edition. In this edition, I'm hoping to have a panel with me and this panel, um, I'm going to ask them to choose maybe their top two, top three um, international sites ever. I mean, I know um, for what, just for the purposes of balance, I've tried to select um, different age groups of um, contributors in this panel. And I'm hoping we'll get a diverse choice of international uh, teams, although I doubt it. I do doubt it because I know that um, for me, no international side of my lifetime can hold a candle to the Brazil team of 1982 Spain-based World Cup. A team of the abject Perez in goal, back four of Leandro Junior, Oscar, and Luizinho, the midfield of Cherezo, Falcao, Socrates, Zico, with Ede and Serginho up front. Ah, <laughs> ah for somebody who's just entered his team, these people played football that. No matter how long I've watched football since, nothing has come close to them. Really. I still believe strongly, I believe so strongly that this team not winning the 92 World Cup impacted the world of football forever. But we'll see. When my when my panel come come in, I would hear from them on their own teams. So please Stick around, stay with us. Hello and welcome back. Uh, Like I said, I've got a panel for this um, um, exciting International Week episode of Your Sports Memo Podcast. Um, They're everywhere. They're um, they're speaking to me from everywhere. I've got Dr. Ekman Omobude, who is also... Actually, I've got two regulars of the pod uh, here. Akinda Udu is on the pod. Welcome, Akinda Udu. Hi, Mecca. Pleasure to be here. Hey, Welcome to your Sports Rebel podcast. Hi, Mecca. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right. Hamid, you are the young blood in here. Um, so the, ch- the plan is um, you'll probably be able to, actually, you and Ekman, the plan will be that you guys will help us dilute it with your choice of teams. So, uh, welcome. Objective. Welcome, Hamid. Um, where are you? Is it okay. Calgary or Toronto? Where are you? No, no, I'm in Calgary. Fantastic. Welcome to your Sports Memo Podcast. So, um, Thank you very much. Akidaudu, you, you, you have the first goal. Your top two or top three international teams ever. Ever. Well, I mean, this is it's, it's something of a thankless task, really, because are you asking me to pick just my personal favorites or the absolute No, no, your, best team no, your, per, your personal your favorite. Career. Your personal favorite. Oh, my personal favorite that I saw. Okay. Yes. Oh, that's that's a bit easier then. 
Um, easily, you have to start with the Brazil 1982 team. It's a cliche, I know. And um, I'm glad I get to go first. <laughs> because I'm sure I, I, get to, I get to preempt one or two people. Even, even though Hamid is slightly of a, of a later vintage. So maybe not so much him. Mm. But Brazil 1982 is very high up on the list. Uh, they didn't win the World Cup, but they were special for many reasons. Another team I would pick, a little more left field, hmm. is the France team of a similar of a similar era, the France team between '82 and '86. Right. Um, led by Michel Platini, hmm. and defined in the minds of everybody who watched them by their midfield which by 1984, when they won the European Championships, had taken, you know, its optimal form and uh, was called, you know, with that wonderful French flair for names and uh, mythology, was called Le Carré Magique, which meant the magic square. <laughs> and um, at, the, at the base of that, of that square, where Luis Fernandez by 84, Mm -hmm. and Jean Tigana mm -hmm. and at the top of the square were Michel Platini and Alain Giret and this was I think it's the best midfield I've ever seen so they get in there for that and they were wonderfully romantic uh, attacking side and finally because I think these things are heavily influenced by youth and the, the things I saw when I was younger Spain of recent would be an obvious choice they were a great size for many reasons, but I'm not going to choose them. Mm -hmm. um, I'll stick to the theme of, of of generations and pick the West German team that won the World Cup in 1990. The World Cup team? Yes, the 1990 World Cup team. Okay. For a couple of reasons. There was something... Um, I like Peter Staput, Peter okay. Staput were on. Carry on, Aki. They were at the tip of unification. Mm -hmm. uh, the reunification of Germany took place later that year. Mm -hmm. And that was the last outing for West Germany at the major tournament. Um, they were a very good side who lost form as the tournament went on, but went on, but still won it. But if you look at the players in the team, you realize that this was from front to back. Just a complete team from uh, Jürgen Kola and uh, Andreas Bremer mm -hmm. in defense mm -hmm. to Lothar Matthäus and Olaf Stone and Thomas Tesla and Pierre Lebowski in midfield uh, to Vola and Klinsmann up front. You struggle to find a deeper, stronger team. Mm. More prosaic than the other, <laughs> but no less formidable. So those are my three. Do you think, you know, it's a good thing you mentioned that French 82 to 86, 86 team. Um, this goes to all of us, all of us on this panel. Do you people think that when when great footballers are talked about, Michel Platini is is actually left behind? Why is that? Well, let me let me go. Let me have a go at that one first. Mm. I think Platini. The, the 1984 European Championships held in France mm. um, contained the best individual performance I've ever seen from any footballer. Any footballer. Any major tournament. Yes. <laughs> in, in, 
in all the since I've watched football. He scored nine goals in five games. As extraordinary talent. Two con he was a midfielder by the way. He yes. was a number ten. Including two consecutive hat tricks against Yugo Belgium and, and Yugoslavia. Yep. Including I think the one against Yugoslavia was a perfect hat trick. Left foot, right foot and header. Mm -hmm. He scored in every game. Um and he carried France to that title. He scored forty one goals in seventy two internationals. Um, every people go on about Zidane, who was more elegant, I think, mm. and maybe technically um, a fantastic player. But he was nowhere near as complete a, an attacking footballer as Platini was, Absolutely. in my view. Absolutely. Uh, Platini, yeah, yeah, certainly belongs in, among the, how to talk about five greatest European footballers I must speak of. Michel Platini, that's my opinion anyway. In my book, in of all the European footballers, Cruyff goes first and Platini second. No, no, mm. for me, no question. Mm. Listen, um, Eggman, your top, your, 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 your list. My list. Mm. Um, I, I think I, I will take the same approach that um, I think just took. Uh, there was a point in my life where international football was romantic for me. I guess maybe it was linked to my quote-unquote coming of age um, in the game and being able to watch and analyze football uh, with a bit more sense. So, in no particular order, uh, I would go to Um Could you say that again? We lost you briefly. Oh, I said I would go for the Cameroon team of 1990. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the things that 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 uh, inspired me then was, for some reason, I gravitated towards playing in defense. I was I was obsessed with everything from the goalkeeper. I had I had someone laughing in the background. <laughs> I was obsessed with with some of the players, particularly the the uh, blessing of goalkeepers that they had. I think they went with three: mm. Ben, Bell, uh, Nkono, and I think Songo. Uh, they were sports for choice, mm. and then I was I was obsessed with just watching Kunde and play the football. Uh, they had some some some. To me at the time, they had fantastic players. They they represented what I felt was Af Africa's great hope in in that tournament. And watching the likes of Massing, the Big Brothers, I think it was Massing when they played played at Argentina. That there was one tackle on on um, Canada and uh, <laughs> a player's boot came off. It, it's still it's it's still uh, uh, at the back of my mind. Just speaking about it now, I can still see it. So I've picked Cameroon. Um, as, uh, maybe I would even give them the order and place them on top. Then the Eagles of '94. Uh, that that to me was probably I would argue, and I guess I'm being biased here now. The best football I've seen a Nigerian squad play hmm. in in all my life watching watching uh, Super Eagles uh, from Ekwafon uh, to Menalo to Chidimwano to uh, Oliha Olise Amokachi the one I used to refer to as the magnet because I couldn't understand how he was able to kill the ball dead from Sinsiasia hmm. and then of course. Uh, 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 Keshi, who didn't quite have have uh, uh, things that we all hoped that he would have after Nations Cup, 
and then Rashidi Yakimi. And then the, the magician who put it all together uh, was the host. So that's my second. My third would be the, the Argentina team of 86. Okay. Again, for defensive reasons, I was in love with the late uh, Jose Luis Brown. Yeah, I liked him. The man just, the man just kept it so simple, and I couldn't understand how how he, he made seemed to make life um, easy for himself. And then you had others, there was Buchaga here, who also made made football look sweet. You know, Baldano mm. uh, also, and uh, uh, of course the king, the king of kings. So I would, I would, those those would be my my three. Do you know, you see, it's so funny that you mentioned these two African sides. Do you do you have this frustration that I'm sure quite a number of us here now have that both both sides could so easily have done more than they did? In those competitions. Yes. Um, in those it, tournaments. It, it's yes. One of I'm sure if you were to speak to those players now, they would probably tell you that they regretted not being able to progress beyond the stages that they did, uh, both personally in their career and uh, in the in the national teams, because the football they played um, tactically, okay, maybe tactically not so much. Because mm-hmm. looking at it now in hindsight and seeing some of the tapes, you could see some of the mistakes that they made that demonstrated some naivety. The, for example, against. Against Italy in the second round, uh, the um, struggles of '94. Mm. There were some decisions that led to that throw-in, which then led to that goal. Yeah. Which, if we had looked at again, they, they would probably shake their heads and, and say that ah, tactically we got that one wrong. We didn't show maturity there. Mm. But yes, it, it, I found it frustrating. Okay, you. Okay, so the the yeah. um, the Italy the Italian night Cameroon team. What? What what did you make of them? And do you share my view that they could have done um, they could have done better? Oh well, well the entire ninety side was the Cameroon entire ninety side was really. You can hear me, right? Yeah, I can hear you very well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the entire ninety side was. I think it's the best African team. I think at a at a World Cup, and for the simple reason that. I think there was um, a little experience. Mkono mm. was still there. Mm-hmm. I think Dell had been there in 82 as well. Mkono certainly was there in 82. Mm-hmm. Mila and Kunde had been there in 82 mm. as well. So these guys had experience of what it took to play at the World Cup and to do well. And they were still around. And at the same time, they had a younger generation coming through. Uh, the big brothers. Francois Omar and uh, Andre Kana, mm-hmm. uh, Makanaki, Emil Umbu Umbu. So they had that good blend of experience and youth. They had won two Nations Cups during the 80s. Yep. So they were very confident. They knew what it was to win. They were a proven side. They knew how to play tournament football and to play it well. So they were ready. They were ready, really. And when you add the, you know, angel dust that Roger Miller brought, right, mm. at that tournament, where everything he touched, <laughs> to cold. you know, ended up in the back <laughs> of the net. Yes. They were ready. They were the best equipped teams. All the teams, 
All the things I did well subsequently suffered from a deficit of experience at that level. Mm. Nigeria in 94, mm. Senegal in 2002, the subsequent... Well, Ghana 2010 were a bit different, I guess, because they had been there four years earlier, yep. to a large extent. But that Cameroon team had that element of surprise that I could have seen them go all the way. They could easily have beaten England. I should have beaten I should have England, beaten England. yeah. And when you get to the semi-finals, anything can happen. So mm. I think that they, they are still the final team I've seen come out of Africa. Very physical, very rough, but this was 1990. You could get away with that then. And they were, they were a good side. They were very, and they were technically good too. They oh were, yes. They were skillful. They were. They were. They were. Their size, the size, their, their size and their physicality made people not realize how excellent they were technically. They were really good, technically. Mm -hmm. Hamid, mm -hmm. Hamid, yeah. come right in. Give okay. us your list. Okay, I think, um, funnily enough, from what, I'm, from what I've seen, my generation, basically, I don't think I've seen many great international sites. Mm. I don't think I've seen particularly. So I'm, I'm basically basing this off from 98 to present. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, um, well, the, the first good side I saw, the first good side, even though they were more like a tournament side, and I don't think they had a great squad, and I don't think they had a, a... I don't think they could have stayed for that long, because really, but the first really good side I saw was 2000... Um, I'm sorry, Brazil, 2002 World Cup. Yes, I have a bias, I'm a very big fan of Ronaldo, I think he's the greatest player ever, mm. so <clears throat> it's, only rational, it's only normal I'll um, swing to that side, but really, for me, as a team, as an 11, even mm. the 11 was not that great, to be honest. But the front three, the front three, I consider them to be special. And I consider them what really won them the tournament. Anyways, and they had Gilberto and um, the other guy, Cleverson, later on. Initially, it was Juninho, Juninho Paulista, then Cleverson came in. And they had the fullbacks, Cafu and um, Cafu and the other guy. Roberto Carlos. Roberto Carlos. They mm. were great. Yeah, they were a great tournament. They were a great team for that tournament. Uh, yes, people might have figured them out later on, but they were a great team for that particular tournament. Ronaldo was in decent form. And Ronaldo was basically rebranding because of the injuries, having to recover from the injuries. Rivaldo was probably at the peak, at the peak of his career. He didn't really do much after that anyways. And Ronaldinho was blossoming and everything. So for me, I struggled, I really struggled to look for teams for this period. Hmm. The other obvious team is Spain. You have Spain in 2008 in particular. 2008, 2010, I wasn't particularly um, that swayed by the 2010 team. But 2012 was also very brilliant. Um, so 2008 and 2012. 2010, the kind of people sort of, it was kind of tough because people sort of defended so much against them. And you also had, um, this was on the back of Mourinho. Um, using the ultra defensive tactics against Barca, so people were sort of embracing those tactics at the time. So, but 2012, I think they were brilliant. The final they played against Italy, um, they won four 0 and I think they they were unbelievable that day. Um, but my favorite team, indeed, I had to choose a tournament team. I had to choose a team has to be the 2008 team, mainly because um, the, the the play was a bit more varied. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of, how we put it, a lot, a lot of, um, I don't use the word tiki-taka, but a lot of pam-pam. It had a lot of um, lovely interplay. 
that lot of lovely interplays, but also they had the directness of Torres. And mm. I love it when teams have that lovely interplay, but can go long or can go direct, or can mm. even just play through ball very quickly. And they had that. Um, and one of the reasons why I like the team, um, individually, you might argue they, may, they, were not, they were not as good as um, the 2012 team. And they had some not so well-known players or people you wouldn't call the best. They had Marchena, they had Capevia, they had Senna, who was 35, so really, 35. So really, they had those three people who were not the most famous guys and everything. But I think they were really, really well-structured units. And people hadn't really figured how... People didn't really know how to play against them compared to how they did in 2010 and to an extent in 2012. So for me, those are the only two teams I can think of. I struggle to think of any other teams. Um, there was wait, France, wait, uh, France uh, in 2001. I mean, I mean, for me, it was a great team. I mean, they had a lot of. They were very. They were kind of defensive. Relied on Zidane and Perez and to an extent Henry. They were very defensive. They had a straight, strong backline and nothing really special, really. Um, I, I never liked the France '98 team. Um, I never liked the France like, the first team that won the 98 World Cup. Mm. Uh, so I could only I can only think of two teams really: the Gee. Brazil team and the and the um, Spain team from 20, 2008 to two thousand and twelve. Do you um I am Ekman and Aki? You feel free to come in on this. Do you think that I I feel though that the French the Spain team of two thousand and eight is was markedly different from the team, the subsequent teams of 10 and 20, 2012. Is that, would I be correct in thinking that? Yeah. Uh, I would, I would probably, okay. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. Um, the one of 2017 in particular looks very much like if, if, if anybody in the, if there was a puppet master in, in the uh, national team setup that was trying to get them modeled against uh, proper tiki taka, mm-hmm. and I think 2010 was it. Okay. Well, well, for me, I think I actually think the main difference was in the response of the opponents. I, th- I think Hamid has already hinted at it. In 2008, Spain had won nothing, and they went into the tournament as they always do with high expectations, mm. but no proven track record. As long as I've been alive, Spain had been going into major tournaments, people expecting much from them and them ultimately falling well short. From the 82 World Cup on one. So 2008 was the same. They went there and they played their normal game, but for some reason, it, 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 it worked. Mm. Uh, Torres stretching the play up front was useful. Villa, who is never talked about, but was a critical player in 08 and 2010. He scored, I think, something like nine or 10 goals in both tournaments combined. Mm. He was in great form. And in 08, people played them as they would play normal teams. So they played their normal game and they won. By 2010, everybody was terrified of them and played them in a completely different So they had to add it. I think they don't get enough credit for being a realize how ultra-defensive people were doing in 2010, for instance. They also became, funnily enough, a bit more defensive in that they became more possession-centric which is why you talk about tiki-taka on steroids. So what then happened was, whereas in 08, they had played with Senna as a lone holder, mm-hmm. and then they played Xavi and Iniesta 
and um, Pedro and sometimes. Silva, I think, and mm. a couple of strikers. And, and two up front, yeah. And two up front. By 2010, they played Alonso and Busquets as yep. holders. Yep. Which yep. they were not doing in a way. They played two holders, played Xavi and Iniesta, um, and then played um, a, a palpably on six sort of up front with Villa most of the time. But the point I is, know. they became more potential. They became more wary of the counter-attack. And they were determined not to be caught on the break. So they were a bit more defensive, a little less exciting in possession. But it worked. They won. And in 2012, was the same. Yeah. The only difference in 2012 was the final. When they played really well on the day. And, but still, the tactics, the basic tactics were the same. People were ultra-defensive against them and defend counter. And they, on the other hand, were determined not to expose themselves to the counter. So they adapted. So I think it was the same team in spirit. And they would have played the same way in 08 if they could have in subsequent tournaments, I think. But they couldn't if they wanted to win. So they adapted. And I think they deserve credit for that. Right. Um, and um, this also, I think... Wait, wait, wait gentlemen. Let me work... Let me let me sorry yeah. let me welcome uh, peter uh, from houston who's joined us here welcome um, dr ntefe by the way um go ahead then while you are there um can you name your top two international sites my top two international sites um my international site of all time is the brazilian 1983 site and um I know we're different generations, but that side is a secondary side. And if you go on YouTube, you see videos made about that side in particular. It pains me sometimes. I'm sorry, I hear people as you are younger than me mentioning the Tajit 1994 or 2002 side, even. There was no comparison. That, that, that team was out of this world. The soccer they played <laughs> has never been replicated. I had watched football a long time before that, but it was just something something that had never been seen and probably never will be seen. It's unfortunate they didn't win the cup. Italy did a smash and grab in what effectively was the quarterfinals but to the second group stage. But oh my god, the football that Brazil played in nineteen eighty two. Under Fela Santana. Nah, 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 nah. My second best side is the Dutch side of 1988. Hmm. I won the Euros in 1988. Hmm. I know you asked for two, but I must sneak in a third. Yeah, please, by all means, go ahead. Yes, the third is Nigeria 1994. Forgive my bias, but I'll tell you why. I'm the man of simple but effective football. For me, that has been one of the most effective sides coming out of Africa with a definite game plan that was predicated on the natural strength of the country's football culture. Mm. All the time I was growing up, Nigeria produced some of the most electrifying wingers in Africa. Come for a dog ball. Chego. Ah, where's he gone? Where's he gone? Where's he gone? Where's he gone? 
<laughs> yes, Peter. One of them and me. Uh huh. Yes. So it was like a roller, a roller coaster, really. A, a, a product, we had a production line of wingers. And if you went to any secondary school, it was always the wingers. The wingers were the stars. So we had a natural talent in wingers. And what did Westerhoff do? He didn't try to change that. He didn't try any fancy system. He went and he built his game around the fast winger and the robust, strong Nigerian attack. Facing the goal, Nigerian central forward that faced the goal. He, none of all this, your back to goal kind of thing. He knew what the Nigerian forward was. Running at goal, facing the goal, and he built a team around that. He went and looked for Finidi George. When, when you read the story of how he looked for Finidi George, it's fascinating. He says he drove into, into the bush, as he called it, to Calabar, to look for his wing. He had already used... He had already used Friday Lahore in 1988. You know, so you could see his game plan. And it was a very simple game plan. It was a game plan that went from, you had a quarterback passer of the ball. You know, and this was, this was, he had him in, he had him in um, Sunday Lisa. And to some extent as well, Okocha. So the ball goes from the quarterback passer bypasses all this ticket taka you see in midfield. <laughs> bypasses it straight to Winger. Winger beats his arm, byline, crosses the ball into the eight, Rashid Yakin is onto it. Or the variation we saw more in 1994 at the Cup of Nations. Straight over the midfield onto an unrushing Rashid Yakini and that ball is net. So for me it was a, it was a very effective building on Nigeria's natural strength. And it was a very effective side. I loved watching them. I know everyone's talked about Cameroon, but, you know, I, I didn't quite enjoy that football from Cameroon the way I enjoyed Nigeria's 1994 team. You now, see, that team for me peaked actually at the Nations Cup in Tunisia. By the World Cup, it was a bit anticlimactic. I thought they were going down a few notches and through the tournament until we faced it. But at the Nations Cup in Tunisia early in the year, they were at the peak of their powers. Watching that team then was poetry in motion. They had perfected what they had done in qualifying Nigeria for a World Cup for the first time. We saw that, that movement that I described happening during the qualifiers, and they had perfected it. By the time they got to Tunisia, they were, they were at the peak of their powers. So those are my top three and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to talk about them as we go along is it you know so we've got Brazil 1982 who till I die will remain <laughs> my best ever ever national team for a tournament ever I don't think I'll see football like that again is it? and I'll go to I'll go to I'll go to heaven hopefully knowing that I saw heaven on earth in that 82 team and then that's Holland in eighty eight and Nigeria in nineteen ninety four. It's it's um I, it's a pity for Ekman and um, Amit that you guys really can't relate with that Brazil eighty two team. It was Aki that used to write. He said something about that Brazil eighty two team. That if you sit down, if you actually go on YouTube and you start to watch the goals they scored in that tournament, you. You just start like, wow, <laughs> how, how were they? If, if I may come in, if I may, if I may come in there, Mecca, mm. I don't think any team ever in the history of 
enemy of, of football has scored a greater suite of goals at a major tournament than Brazil 82. 11, precisely 11 of the 15 goals they scored in their five games were, were perfect goals. From Socrates' shimmy and shot against the Soviet Union to a Diaz flick and volley to a Zico's overhead kick against New Zealand or a free kick against Scotland or Junior's goal against Argentina. Um, um, Argentina, or even either goal against Italy. The, thing, the reason why Brazil 82 is important, it's easy to miss this, is, is that first, the fact that we're talking about them 38 years later is proof. It destroys that idea that if you don't win, it doesn't matter. Mm. That only winners count. People call on inches, so many uh, voices are still uh, expanded talking about that Brazilian team after the years, and they didn't even get to the semi-finals, right? Because it tells you what football is about. It's about enjoying the game. It's about the romance of it. Brazil 82 was the last time that somebody did what we all wanted to do on the playground, which is pick the eleven, the best eleven players. That's it. Find, <laughs> That's it. Put them out there on the field. And ask them to go and win. That's it. The last team to actually manage it without any fancy tactics or anything. The last team to actually manage it was Brazil in 1970. Mm. And the 1982 team was sort of a reincarnation of that. But they had two critical weaknesses. That's it. The goalkeeper and the striker. And the center forward. Mm. And it's, it's very difficult to overcome that. Which brings me to another theme in many of the things we've talked about here. Spain, Brazil 82, France in the mid-80s, even Germany in 1990. The midfield was exceptionally strong. Not all those teams had great forwards or great defenders necessarily, but a lot of them had very strong midfields because that's where the game is played. But Brazil 82 is... It's just... It's, it's incredible. You can't... The Spanish sun, the gold jerseys, <laughs> the, the blue shorts, the tight, the, blue, the tight blue shorts, the, the joie de vivre, yeah, the joie de vivre, the sheer spontaneity of their football, uh, the way they played, it was incredible. It, it was just, it just made you feel that it was more than just a game. It was art. Mm. It was art brought to life. So you can never forget that team. Many people win the World Cup, nobody will remember them. But nobody will ever forget that game. Amit, I... And you have to watch them in real time. Watching them in real time. You know, now you can watch all those old grainy videos. But watching that film unfold in real time. (laughs) There's no way to describe it. There's no way to to describe what it did did to somebody that liked football. The way they touched the ball was different. (laughs) Those people touched the ball as if... They were caressing it. And I'm not exaggerating. They, I, I talked to you this about about this thing in Mecca a few months ago. We watched some of the clips. And I was telling them, Mecca, you know, one thing that has sport football is this congregation of the top players in Europe. Yes. So you have to do this European efficiency thing. Yes. You know? That team had only, if I remember rightly, three players playing in Europe. Two. And one, only yes, one, was the only one lineup. 
No, only one. Um, what's his name? Um, Falcao was playing for for Roma. Okay, that's either Roma or Roma. Was at Roma. Falcao was at Roma. He was the only one in the starting lineup. The soul yes. played only one game. Edinho yeah, was also playing in Italy, but Edinho never played. Edinho yes, was on the bench mm. in place of Cerezo. Yeah. Mm. But that was the thing. So we hadn't seen a, a lot of it, and there was no. You, you have to know the background. There was no satellite TV. Satellite. That was, that was the first tournament that I think that most Nigerians watched in real time before you could go days and not even hear the result. There was no information superhighway. You were only watching English football. So a lot of the Brazilian, the Brazilian team was practically homegrown. So you didn't see them on a week-to-week basis. And they came on tainted by Europe. So they came and they gave us yeah. football. The way they played, the way they passed, what they did with that ball. You know, they were romancing the ball. Yeah. And watching it in real time, it was incredible. You couldn't believe if these people were playing football in a major tournament and they were doing this. You know, it was like a Holland Globetrotters kind of thing. I simply couldn't believe they were doing this in the World Cup. Oh, it, was, it was something else. Peter, wait. Something um, else. Um, Amit, that you oh. you practically you practically dubbed the no, two, the Brazil 2002 World Cup winners with faint praise. I I I, I is that I, I I thought I thought that that Brazil team practically did mm-hmm. a lot of super stuff. Um, but, you know, initially people didn't realize that they used to play with three at the back. It wasn't so apparent that they used to play with three at the back. And at some point, they they were able to... I think it was after the the near defeat to Belgium that he struck them that, no, we cannot keep playing Juninho and um, and um, Gilberto Silva. Yeah. So they, they they did. They, they, I thought they were... I thought they were, they were... They played on the front foot. That's what I would like to say. They played on the front foot in every every game. Which was what I, which was what yes. I thought I mean, was good. Yeah, I mean, you were going to say. Okay, I think, I think, I, I think, um, they were well coached in the sense that they didn't have, as I said earlier, they didn't have such great players across the whole team. Mm. You know, you got the the team had Roque Junior. They had Roque <laughs> Junior, for example. Yes. So who was probably who, who, who was the terrible defender actually? But they were able to adjust. They were able to, they were able to adapt their team. Lucy was very good. Edmilson was okay. But I think they were able to adapt their team to suit their strength. They didn't have they didn't have pure wingers, so they played with three up front. But really, not not the usual seven and eleven. No, they mm. played almost with two tens and someone uh, Ronaldo up front. Mm. So they were able. I think they were smart enough. Um, Scolari was smart enough to adapt his team in a way that would actually work. You know, so that's what I really, really appreciated. Uh, and they had Ronaldo, who was who was in decent form. I don't think that was the best form of his career, certainly. But he was in decent form and he was able to score because of the quality he had. And he was coming back from injury. So, but I think in a way, in a way, they still felt like an European team, but mm. not not as much as say the '94 team, mm. or because at least they have. I, I, I feel they were more interesting up front. I didn't watch too much of the '94 team, but at least. From what I've seen, they were a bit, they were a bit more turgid than other sides. So um, that's why I like the Brazil team. But comparatively, compared to most of the other teams, I don't think they were that great. Ekwen. Yeah, I think the point. I think the point, Pete. Okay. Sorry, Ekwen. Go ahead. Ekwen. No, no. I was, I was just going to um, 
quest of, of the, the sensation that Akin and Peter referred to watching the 82 Brazil team. That, that feeling I got watching the Eagles of 94 in, mm. in both tournaments that they played in. I was just recalling one of the things that, that, that struck me then was it almost seems like I actually need to go back and watch the game now so that I'm actually remembering with, with what actually happened. It seemed like they would take their time, move the ball around slowly, and then all of a sudden they all seem to be in sync. So time to attack to put together a little bit. A good example would be uh, for the nation. So remember the first goal where I think it's it, Rora who's struggling on the left to shake, shake off the defender, and then all of a sudden he kicks it in pushes it to JJ and continues running. I think everybody else was trying to run into position at the same time and then JJ flicked back to him and it was his face to knock it. And then with the second one, uh, referring to Peter's point on, on the quarterback end, <coughs> uh, Ulisse knocks it to, to Finidi, who I don't know how he does He just left. He just left the back. He left back for dead. You know? It, it was poetry for me watching that. Just you know what? I think I'm going to go on YouTube again now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the point I wanted to make again is something Peter hinted at. I think is very important. I think technology has played its part, right, in homogenizing football as has economics. Mm. So Europe is the center of the football world today, um, whereas in the past it was more bipolar. It was Europe and it was Latin America. Mm. Now it's completely Europe. And this has taken away a lot of the romance and the surprise from the World Cup. And I think it has diminished international football greatly. It has. Um, the rise of the Champions League, the satellites, the beaming of league, European League football everywhere in the world. It has, it has really... because. When, when we were kids, when I was a kid growing up, the World Cup was a wonderfully exotic event. You would see players you'd never heard of. Yep. And, you, and within a week, they would be household names. Mm. They would be stars. And these were people you'd never heard of, which was the point he made about Brazil 82. Even though they used to show Brazilian football on Nigerian TV. So we knew some of those guys. Yes. But, you know, they were nobodies. Ferenzo uh, played for Atletico Mineiro. Um, you know, nobody knew who these people were. Leandro, Flamingo, they, they were local guys. And then they became stars. And that was the beauty of the World Cup, the discovery, the surprise, mm. the unexpected, the exotic, the new. Now, there's nothing new. You watch a World Cup, France 98, you've seen, nobody you've seen, you've seen everybody, yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> you've seen everybody. Mm. It, it's, it's not for time. It's a middling European team or other. Um, they're all Europeanized. There's mm. nothing to see. When I talked about France 82 and 86, I would even make the point that France has been successful since. But I can't abide either of the teams they've had since. The 98 2000 team was terribly defensive. Terribly defensive. They won because they didn't play the great final in 98. Mm. And in 2000, because they had, again, Zidane and Henri. But the midfield they take. In the semi-final against Portugal in 2000 was Petit, Vieira, and Deschamps. Who picked that? How, how is that? How do you enjoy that? No, they win, but there's nothing interesting. France 2018, I thought they were... I did, I, 
completely uninterested. Playing entirely on the counter, defending deep, and relying on Mbappe's pace. They won, great for them, but there's no romance, there's no beauty, there's no enjoyment in the football. And that's what has become of international football now. Which um, is, and that's why Hamid will struggle to find really, really exciting things to talk about. Because at international level, increasingly, because of the homogenization of the tactics and the players, there aren't any anymore. I, I, go ahead. I think um, a less successful team, a, lot, a, a less successful team um, would be the um, Bielsa's team. They were not successful because they didn't go far. Chile. Uh, Bielsa's team. No, no, no. Chile were very good. I really, I we really could, we could Bielsa. look. No, Argentina. We could. You could write a book about You could write a book about the teams Argentina had between '98 and 2006, and, you, and every one of which should have won. And you were born. You were born each and of their coaches. Somehow, you, you born and each of their coaches. that decade, they were fantastic. They, 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 football. You see, yes, um, but they never won. It's so funny that we, as much as we discuss the Brazil, that Brazil eighty-two team. Uh, as the years have gone by and as I've watched um, this sport, I have found out that I do have a, I don't know how to describe it, a soft spot for the same Italy team of 82. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, great team. They, great they, team. But uh, in fact, I would have to oppose Peter earlier. It wasn't a smash and grab. Italy played very well. Italy played. Italy played. Italy played. They played. Very, very good team. They, they had a fabulous squad. See, it was only when, in years later, yeah. as I started checking up on that team and then watching the games again, I realized, man, Brazil didn't lose to a, an, as we say, an anyhow team. No. They lost to a very good team. No. <laughs> a really good team and good, great tactics Absolutely. at the time. The time allowed them. And if, if you take it as a collective, you remember Italy in '78. They were very good. They, yes. they got to the semi-finals effectively yeah. yeah. with many of the same players. Yes. In fact, I've always thought Paolo Rossi was far better in '78 he, than he, he was in '82. He was a much better all-round footballer he, in '78. Yes. So he, he didn't score as many goals. I think he scored. So he got three team goals. Was a really good team that had come through together. Mm. I, I saw highlights um, and video reels of, of Paolo Rossi and the thing that struck me I think the first the first of the observation I made was this guy is a thief but his ability to just find himself I thought for that age for that period of football I didn't well the youth and me have been exposed I did not think that that level of, of practical exposure was, was there I think it might have come before his time <laughs> just put himself in pocket he, and sneak out and make it so it's so funny that whenever I, whenever I, I see people in Zagi, I always think Paolo Rossi. Yeah. Every time. Of course. <laughs> exactly. Of course. But you have to remember, you have to remember, Paolo Rossi was originally a winger. Yep. I, he started at Vicenza as a winger. Mm. Yes. And in 78, he played as a winger. He was much better around. 82. He was coming off a two-year ban mm. of Totomero, uh, the precursor of Calciopoli. Indeed. Are, you know, Italy, football <laughs> is corrupt, right? <laughs> and he had been banned. He was banned for two, two years. He came back just before the World Cup. He wasn't actually fit at all, really. 
the inventor himself as they finished that. But if you watch them in the 78 World Cup, it was a very different player. He was a much, he was a quick live wire forward. Yes. Who did lots of other things. That's, what, that's what he was. In that 78, he was, he partnered with um, the famous, um, ah, what's his name? The UV striker. Uh, In fact, yes, it was him and Bettega up front. It was him and Bettega up front. See, the Nigerian Super Eagles team of 1994, 92 to 94. Man, I I I used to I used to I I feared nobody in Africa. I feared nobody. I was I was like I don't care. Africa should select an eleven. We will beat you people. <laughs> that's how I used to feel. They're just you people should come. We will beat you. They were so, they were so. They, 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 they had. There's this sense that the players actually used to feel that once they get onto the pitch, they were unbeatable. I remember in one of my interviews with them, with Chidiwanu, and I did ask. I asked him. I said something about how Mtukagbadi um, was upset that he didn't make. The US 94 squad. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, mm. people, gentlemen, that the one who looked at me like I was speaking Greek. He now he looked at me and he said to me, Who would he replace in that squad? That's, he, asked, exactly. he asked me to count yeah. everybody that went to the World Cup, yeah. all the defenders that went, and tell me, I should tell him who Chidi, who Ndukaogbadi should have replaced. I said, Sorry. And I continued. So, anyway. it's a valid point. I love Mr. Really, for sentiment because he would have become the first player to have represented at all levels, at all levels, team under twenty and senior World Cup. So people were very keen for him to achieve that milestone. And he was a great player, but not in that team. That, There's that, no way he was going to get into that side. So, I think a Nigerian coach, though, you can bet he would have gone. Yeah, he might have. But See, for that very reason, I, 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 for that very reason, in, but in, in reality, there was nobody. There was a Zeugo, there was a Guavon. Or did a Zeugo go? Yeah, Zeugo went. Zeugo went. Yeah, there was Iroha. There was um. There was there was Okafor. There was Okafor. There was Okechuku. The late Uche Okafor. Uche Okechuku. And then I lost. Oh, where is he? Where is he going to play? Really? All bigger, stronger than him. Well, when, you, when you look at um, heartbreaks, I still find it really hard to um, on to to watch those last two minutes against against Italy. It's it, it, it's still. It still rankles to this day. I, and uh, to be fair, a lot of the players who were involved that day, they say it, that uh, when they think back now, they realize that they just could and should have done much better in that game and they should have gone uh, further than they did. So, um, you guys have been awesome. Uh, Hamid, uh, what yeah. for your generation... And with all this, as Aki said, with all this Champions League and Eurocentric nature of football now, what what, what do you what, what would you what, what, I, should we just accept it that that's that's what it is going to be forever? I think I think uh, money money controls the whole thing entirely. 
So the money is in Europe. The the economies in the other regions are not doing so great. Mm-hmm. And it's very little organization. So by the time you have youngsters needing to port from Brazil, you can't go to port for Lisbon or Benfica. So they live at 17. Really, a 17 year old leaves the country, goes to Porto, has to play. I agree that yes, Porto and Benfica might not be as rigid as say England or Germany, but still, they have to play within a certain system and they have to play a certain style. Mm. At the end of the day, Portugal are not that different from any other team, really, in Europe. You know, so all the players coming in from South America have to come in early and play the same way. You have Ronaldo who came into PSV at. I think 18 or 17, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But he's a special kind of talent. You have Ronaldinho, special kind of talent. But look at it, you have Vinicius and Rodrigo playing for Real Madrid. These guys are basic footballers. They are basic footballers without any... Nothing differentiating them. They are very, very average footballers. You know, they are very European. um, Vinicius in particular. And I'm like, these are the guys playing for Real Madrid and they are supposed to be Brazilian. Wow. So, for me, and unless there's a miracle in terms of how economies evolve and how finance, maybe finance changes or there's any rule, there wouldn't be a rule anyway. Mm. But people will keep on, when you have um, when you have the agents who are getting these guys in earlier, the players will keep on all being in this particular way. And I find, I genuinely, without a doubt, I genuinely find football boring. I genuinely like football boy. I, I, I feel I, you. I watch the games, but I don't really enjoy the games. It's just just a lot of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I rarely see people who excite me. I, I watch just out of obligation, but I, I, I rarely get excited about it. I was watching the Italy, Italy Spain 2012 uh, final, the 2012 final. And the first goal, I think, was Jordi Alba. I love Jordi Alba anyway. Mm. The first goal. Mm-hmm. Javi was on the ball, I think it was Javi. So the other one was running from fullback, was running from fullback the way he runs. And the Italians, for all their fame defensive structure, blah, blah, but they're always immobile anyways. So for all their fame defensive structure and everything, they could see Jordi Alba running and they just couldn't stop him. And Javi, he played a wonderful ball and Jordi Alba scored. Those are, for me, you rarely see these things. You rarely see these things. Messi will retire now. Messi will retire now. Um, there are not many players who genuinely excite you. Which, there are not many players. Yes. I can, if, if I have to think of players that can excite me today, I don't think I can count 10. I mean, I don't think I can count 10 footballers who, who can put their foot on the ball and say, oh yeah, let's play. Let's play this football. I, you I, know, so for me, for our generation, mm. uh, I, and I pity the generation coming up because they are, they are then totally based on statistics anyway. So they judge everything by stats. Um, Football, fantasy, Premier League, all that kind fantasy of stuff. So they judge, yep. yeah, they judge everything. So basically, the judge is, is the key because what happens is they play fantasy Premier League, and fantasy Premier League awards points based on who has assists, who has goals, mm. blah 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 blah. So when they are judging players, they judge it from ah, Harry Kane has assists and goals, so that means he's the best player. So and I just laugh because that's a joke. I'm not saying nothing to do with Harry Kane. Just you can't judge people like that. So. Um, increasingly, I don't, I don't really see where what will change in European football or global football. I think it will become more boring, and um, 
unless a miracle happens, which I don't see how. Which? You have generational Wait. players like Messi, Ronaldinho, Iniesta, you know, some of these people, but really, there are not many. So for me, we just watch, I just watch, and I'm like, okay, I have to watch. I've, I've grown up watching, and that's it. I mean, you, what you said, what you said. I feel the same frustration that you do. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that I consider today football boring, but what, what, I've, what I've found is there is very little I'm seeing today that I haven't seen before. Mm. So, so that excitement, that buzz, that buzz that I got in, de- in decades past is no longer there. But what I've, what I've done now as a sort of coping strategy is two things. One, uh, look at lower league going to look for gems that I haven't heard of before. Wow. Uh, you do that? So, for example, I've, I've followed, I followed Bamford to here, to the Premier League now. Okay. Um, and then two, when I'm watching games, uh, it's almost like a luxury. I, I, I then try a random player and just watch him throughout and see what he's doing for space, see what he's doing for control, see what he's doing for his passes. That's how I look for my six now. I, I, I can't get my six from, from, from this mechanized, organized football that, that Europe has forced us to watch. Peter, you must come in on this. You, every day during, during the Premier League matches, you always send me messages. What is this that these people are doing? I'm a man of progressive football. You know? First of all, I, I talked about the Europeanization of a world soccer because football is now centralized in Europe. But the one that has killed me, my bugbear, is what I call the pep system. You know, passing out from the back, you know, this the mixture of the tiki taka plus the pep system of having your, your goalkeeper as a sweeper and all that. <laughs> right now, we've gone to a stage where Europe is doing possession is more important than anything else. You have to keep the ball. You have to keep the ball. So when you get the ball under the forward pass on, you decide that the safer option is to pass it back. For me, that's not football. Move this ball forward. Football is about goals. Football is about attack. Mm. You know? So that's what Europe has done to football, I think. And it's a... Would I call it it's a we are going to support? Because of us can watch the top clubs in real time, mm. you're going to see this organization of tactics. Yes, we are gradually moving away from what I call that pep system to what I now, you know, call the Liverpool system. Right? Mm. Yeah. Which so damn unique to it, you know, to win the Champions League. It's, it's a faster, you know, ball on the run, move. It's a quicker movement. But what pains me about it is in the next two, three years, you're going to see all the clubs start to copy it. It doesn't make for exciting football. Everybody's playing the same system. Just look at personal from the back. Norwich was playing out for the back last season. Everybody, <laughs> championship teams are playing out for the back. What is that about? How is he in that chess game of different tactics? Mm. You know, <laughs> some people are playing kick and rush. Some people are passing out from the back. Some people are using wingers. You know, so I, I just want to see this duel of different managers playing different tactics. Not people just doing the same thing. But I think that's going to 
continue, you're going to see uniform systems some more because all of us are watching the same football. All of us all over the world are now watching the same football and most of us watch European football. Hmm. I don't know if that will change, maybe not in the next decade. But hopefully, if maybe leagues like the Chinese League <laughs> can become prominent, and hey, who knows? We have, to, we have to hope. Africa. I, I like what people are saying. Is that exciting players with the ball. I remember kind of saying that when he first went to Europe and when he got the ball, he was looking for somebody to dribble. That was his thing. He wanted somebody to dribble. But they were telling him, get rid of the ball, my friend. Get rid of it. What are you doing with the ball? Don't hold it. Because that's an African player. Mm. You have to beat somebody now. You have to dribble somebody. So, I think I have this flair and skill. I don't know. It's just a hope. It's a wish. I don't see it. But, you know, I don't know. In future, we might have, you know, different systems coming. And force people to do different things. At the moment, for me as well, I second what a lot of people have said here tonight. Mm. That football, from the excitement perspective, might have lost a yard on two on what it used to be. It's all very efficient. We'll always enjoy watching football. It's 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 fun. It's exciting. But you know, it's lost something. Some of the pieces. Aki, can you have the final word on this? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure of the European tactics per se. I think technology plays the role of accelerating everything. So the speed with which tactics are absorbed and, uh, uh, you know, I, which they spread and they are adapted and become universal is much greater now than it was in the past. Mm. But it also means that the speed at which they are worked out and adapted to it also quicker. Mm. So I have no issues with, with the tactical trends as they are, for instance. I think the real issue is about multipolarity in football, which is, and with technology and with how it will happen, but it will be great to see other countries, other developing enough economic power to keep their own football alive, keep their own players in the country and develop their own styles, you know? So have Brazilian and Argentine players stay in their countries to a certain age, mm. have African players stay in Africa to a certain age, develop their own unique signature styles and then so that they, there can be competition again mm. and there can be a contrast, a clash in styles. As it is now, everybody just goes into the big feeder system in Europe and everybody is the same. And that's killing the game. That's killing the international game in particular. It is. And I, I think it will take a real realignment economically for that to change, given where the world is now. Hard to see that realignment happening, but we can only live in hope. Life is about cycle and change. Hmm. And even the most unlikely things happen. True. And you, we could be living in a different world some years hence, where each country can develop its own football culture more fully, like was the case in the past. And this will look like a a, a dark period as you, that has since ended. So I look forward to that. I think that could be the salvation of international football and the game in general. 
just to have that diversity, that multi multi-polarity again. Again, thank you so very much for coming on your Sports Memo podcast. Um, Edwin, same thing. Thank you so very much for your time. Hamid, thank you. of Calgary, thank you also for coming. Yes. <laughs> Dr. David of Houston, thank, thank you guys. Thank you so very much for giving me this time on your Sports Memo podcast. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it. Um, come to the end of this International Week special episode of your Spot Memo podcast. Really hope you've enjoyed it. We've gone down memory lane. We've discussed um, what is possibly the future or what the future might hold for for the sport that we all love. It was my pleasure to have um, Doctors Ekman Omobude and Peter Ntefe alongside Akinda Odu and Hamid from Calgary. I love, I loved, I loved this episode. I really did. Um, so I, I hope you enjoyed it too. And if you did, please feel free to share and um, also try and feel free to contact us either on our website www acosports.com or even um, from where you're listening to this pod you can leave a message for us also there once again my name is Calvin Emekonwoka peace out